So today, we're looking at the book of Acts, chapter 22, and I'm going to begin at verse number 17. And it came to pass that when I was come again to Jerusalem, even while I prayed in the temple, I was in a trance, and saw him saying unto me, Make haste, get thee quickly out of Jerusalem, for they will not remove, for they will not receive thy testimony concerning me. And I said, Lord, they know that I imprisoned and beat in every synagogue them that believed on thee. And when the blood of thy martyr Stephen was shed, I was also standing by and consenting unto his death and kept the raiment of them that slew him. And he said unto me, Depart, for I will send thee far hence unto the Gentiles. Lord, I pray today, God, that you would give me the voice to speak this word and let it fall upon a hear, an ear that will hear it and receive it. Lord, I pray, do your good work today in your people. I ask it in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. Let the church say, in Jesus' name. Jesus name. All right, greet some folks before you're being seated this morning. morning is when two shall meet in heaven. And I'm going to start with three bits of wisdom, quoting from John Mason in You Can Do It. He said, unforgiveness does a great deal more damage to the vessel in which it is stored than to the object on which it is poured. He said, also, if you want to be miserable, hate somebody. And finally, he said, there are two marks of greatness, giving and forgiving. Saul was a young man when he began his career as counselor for the prosecution of Christians. And Stephen was a fine Christian, a stellar member of God's church, a newly appointed deacon, which office required outstanding moral character. Consider the qualifications for the office of the deacon, which are found in 1 Timothy, the third chapter. Likewise, must the deacons be grave, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy of filthy lucre, holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. Let me just pause and... Talk about that scripture for a minute. Holding the mystery of the faith in pure conscience. When I read that, it really struck me because I have been in the ministry a long time. Going over 40 years, going on 50 years, five decades I'm going on. I've been in the ministry a long time. And I've seen men come and go. 
And I've seen ministers get licensed in the United Pentecostal Church who over time changed the mystery of the faith, didn't hold to the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. They sold out for a compromised message and a compromised doctrine. They went for numbers instead of truth. And so it's important for me to emphasize and to tell you that to qualify in this office or position, which is a ministry position, one must hold the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. You need to absolutely believe this is the truth and there is nothing else that is truer than this. And let these also be first proved. Let them be proved first. Some people want an office before they've done a job. They feel like once I get the job, I'll do the job. But in the church, ministry makes room for itself. The cream rises to the top. Always rises to the top. And if you've got it, do it. And when you do it and you get recognized that you have it, you will get it. The job will follow you because you do the work for the job. You don't do the job for the work. You do the work for the job. So make full proof. They need to be first proved. And then let them use the office of the deacon being found blameless. Even so must their wives be grave, not slanderers, sober, faithful in all things. Being a person in this position requires more than of one person alone. It involves their spouse and their family as well. And let the deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their, own, ruling their children and their own houses well. For they that have used the office of a deacon will purchase to themselves a good degree and great boldness into faith, which is in Christ Jesus. So these are some very strong, stellar qualifications of character and spirituality for this office which Stephen held. Stephen wasn't just anybody. He was a dedicated, anointed, and faithful follower of Jesus Christ. Stephen was a man who was all in it. He was all up in it. Wherever church was, he was there. He was carrying the water. He was doing whatever it took to make it happen. His heart, his goal, his mind was on heaven and doing the ministry and the work of God to make the kingdom go forward. If anyone should have been saved and safe, it should have been someone like Stephen. He was not a fringe member of the church an occasional visitor to a Sunday service. But he was there every time the door was open. He was one of those people coming through the Valley of Baca, as Sister Lefebvre said, and digging wells and leaving water for those to come and follow after. He was a leader in every sense of the word. I cannot emphasize it enough. If there was any act of injustice here, it was that this man should have lost his life in this manner. It was a grave miscarriage of justice. Do you understand what I'm saying? 
Saul also had qualifications. He had studied at the feet of Rabbi Gamaliel, who the Bible says was a Pharisee, a doctor of the law, had in reputation among all the people, and who on the occasion of trying the apostles Peter and John at court at the Sanhedrin advised constraint to the Sanhedrin by saying in Acts 5, 38, 39, refrain from these men and let them alone. For if this counsel or if this work be of men, it will come to naught. But if it be of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest happily you be found even to fight against God. If only Saul of Tarsus had taken heed to this wise counsel. Yet, instead, he fell into his own trap of hate. Too often, a youthful mistake. I'm minded of my days of yore as a younger preacher when I regularly despised all of those denominational love messages. Because I thought truth was greater than love. I thought that they ought to love the truth rather than true the love. But when you get older, you begin to realize what the Apostle John was talking about in his advanced years, in his final epistles to the church. My little children, love, for love is of God. I begin to understand better uh, what Paul was referring to in 1 Corinthians, the 13th chapter, the love chapter, where the most classic definition of what love really is and what it really means has been written and no clearer or better words have ever been spoken as to the character and the quality of love. And when I read this text this morning, this frank admission of blood guiltiness in Paul, I'm left to consider these questions. Can a murderer be saved? And not just any murder, but the murder of a saint, a child of God that is a saint. And then I wonder what it will be, how it will be for the, for the now saved Paul to meet his fallen brother in Christ, Stephen, in heaven. How will it be for them when these two shall meet in heaven? Have you ever thought about that? What do you suppose they each must feel when they meet face to face? Will Paul feel guilt's stabbing finger? Will Stephen know anger? Will vengeance and justice cloud his view of his fellow Christian standing before him? What will it be like for a forgiven killer and his murdered victim 
What will it be like when they meet in heaven? This is big stuff. This is deep stuff. We don't often go here because we are so wrapped up in our own cause, in our own issue, in our emotions, in our feelings, in our needs, in our issues, in our desires that we cannot see past the nose on our face. But being a Christian is so huge. It's so big. It's so all-encompassing. It is such a surrender. It is such a surrender that even death itself, danger and death, challenges us not. Life doesn't own us. We hold it for a moment, but it doesn't own us. Eternity beckons. Eternity is the fate that all must face, whether for good or ill. None escapes what is on the other side of when this life passes us. And so everything about this life prepares us for what is in advance, for what is ahead. Everything that we go through is a part of the preparatory experience that prepares us for how we shall spend eternity. Now, I would say that all of our emotions can be boiled down to simply two, love or hate. Love and hate, which is the opposite of love. And I truly believe that when you consider it, you will see that all the emotions that we experience are a function of one or the other of these two root emotions. Take depression, for instance. Isn't hating something, isn't it hating something? that lies at the bottom of our depression, hating something. How about low self-esteem? Doesn't that come about because of self-loathing? Envy. Don't you just hate it when somebody else has what you don't have? You could name any one of these negative emotions and if you think about it and consider it, you will realize that the motivation, the catalyst behind that emotion is hatred for something. You hate something. Take, for instance, mercy and forgiveness. Isn't love behind that? What about patience, kindness, humility, preferring others, a giving spirit, being slow to anger, quick to forgive, aren't these all a function of love that come out of love. All the good emotions that we could experience could be boiled down to having love at the root of it. 
One of the fundamental scriptures about God is this. 1 John 4, 7 and 8. Uh, I have it in here somewhere. <laughs> First John 4, 7 and 8 says this. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God. And everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God. For God is love. And I used to consider all this namsy-pamsy, lovey-dovey stuff, agape gospel, all that is not important or not as important as knowing pure doctrine and pure truth. But you can believe all the pure doctrine and truth in the world and not love a soul enough to give them reason for your faith in meekness and fear but rather in your zeal to kill error, you kill the searching heart of a soul who is on the pathway, somewhere on the path to find God. How many have been killed by a radical truth flag-waving child of God, apostolic? Somebody said, well, I've got my axe and my 238s. Hallelujah. We believe all the truth that there is. But there is a way to convert an Apollo rather than a head-on confrontation and an invitation to a doctrinal debate. Priscilla and Aquila didn't shame him publicly but took him aside privately and explained the way to him more perfectly. Love was the ability to help them to do it. They didn't see a doctrinal divide there that separated them, the believers of truth, from him, someone who only had a part of the truth. But they saw him as someone en route to the truth. And if they approached it in the right manner, they would be able to reason it out and for them to come to the same understanding. Can you give God a hand praise? The truth we hold is so precious, and it is the difference between eternity, life and death, salvation and destruction. It is so very important, but how we handle it is critical. It is critical. Because the same medicine that can save a soul can cost a life if it is not applied in the correct manner. Imagine the universe before Creation populated it with entities and with objects. What was there? There was only God, only God, and God is love. So the only thing, the only emotion that was true was love. Absolute, pure, perfect love. And love is the kind of emotion that puts everything in order. Love is an emotion that helps us to place things 
in its context. Not to see a particular incident and interpret it out of context, but to place it in the bigger picture of the larger context of things. Love helps us to see the big picture. And God is all about the big picture. Can you say praise the Lord, somebody? So all that there was was love. But along came Lucifer, who loved himself, the creature, more than the creator. And that's the whole problem with sin, because sin is rebellion against creation's creator. It's to deny the creator what is his, what he intended, what he purposed, what he desired, and what he wanted. We need to understand, we fallen humans who need God so desperately and desire to be saved, there is one interloper, one interferer that is always standing between us and heaven to accuse the brethren, to accuse them daily before God. He is interested in our destruction, and he cares about our faults and failures and the errors of our ways. He cares about our youthful sins and all the shadows that follow behind us. He cares about it. And his job is to place it before God and to cause God to turn away from us. But God is not about hate. He's about love. He's about embracing the sinner. Hallelujah. Now, God hates sin, but he loves sinners. God doesn't hate homosexuals. He loves them. But he hates their sin. You name the sin, God hates it. But the sinner that did it, God loves them. A murderer, a rapist, a pedophile, a wife beater. A manslayer, a kidnapper, a thief, a liar, an adulterer, a fornicator, a promiscuous person, a drunk, whatever it may be that that person has done or is involved with. God does not like the sin. He hates it, but he loves the sinner. Who did Jesus hang out with? Blasphemous, foul-mouthed fishermen, tax collectors, publicans, Sinners, drunkards, harlots, who did Jesus hang out with? The people he was trying to reach because God loves people and people are sinners. So who are we to hate people? No matter where they are or what they've done, who are we to hate them? We may hate what they do, but we are not allowed to hate them. You cannot go to heaven with hate in your heart. If you are a racist, you will not be in heaven. You can't go there and hate somebody that is of a different ethnicity than you are. It doesn't matter what color they are. You can't hate and be in heaven. 
Hallelujah. Oh, I think you should give God a hand praise on that. So Satan was cast out of heaven, and that's when the hatred of God began. That's when hate came into the universe. Hate is the opposite of love, which God is. So we might begin to understand that every deviation from love is an invitation to hate. Anytime we turn from love, it's an invitation to hate. And hate, unattended, grows. It develops. It percolates. It becomes monstrous. It'll cause someone to take a gun and walk into a school or an auditorium, or a church, or a bar, and blow people away. Hate does that. Love does not do that. Love rushes to the rescue and tries to save a life while hate is trying to take it away. We have these two great forces at play in our world every day. Love, hate. Love, hate, love, hate. And there's not a one of us that will not be touched by one or the other or both of them in our lives. But heaven is a very different kind of place. The Bible says, Revelations 21, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them. They shall be his people. God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. There shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, Neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. Heaven is such a very different place. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. When Paul and Stephen met in heaven, they were connected by life on this earth. They crossed one another's paths while in the flesh. And it was not a good meeting, but in heaven, there must be an embrace. There must be joy. There must be celebration. There must be recognition. You are my brother. You are my sister. You are a child of God. We are fellow travelers on the road of redemption. Your path and my path might have been slightly different, but we wound up in the same place. And when we meet each other, there can be nothing but joy. I'm glad to see you, Brother Stephen. I'm glad to see you, Brother Paul. Hallelujah! 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 Now, I don't care who you are. There's not a one of us 
who has not suffered some form of wrong or injustice or even a great crime against us. But that's life. And life has its challenges. We face dark days and go through difficult times. And we are not always blessed with good experiences, but sometimes we suffer unjustly. Again, to quote Mason, he says, you can always measure a man by the amount of opposition it takes to discourage him. Cecil Lafay made some very good points today. That was a beautiful illustration of this Bible scripture, and we all came to a better understanding, amen, of really what it is in the faithful that drives them forward and in the laggards who fall behind. You can measure a man by the opposition, by the amount of opposition it takes to discourage him. Do you have within you what it takes to be a winner? Do you have what it takes to rise above again and again? Do you have what it takes to come out of the darkness into the light over and over again? Can you be knocked down and still get up and be knocked down and still get up and be knocked down and still get up and still get up and still get up? Because if you can't, you won't make it to heaven. If you can't, you'll throw in the towel. If you can't, you'll say, I'm a quitter. And no quitter is ever a winner. You have got to stay in this race. You have got to run it to the finish. You've got to stay with it to the end. If you want the reward, if you want the crown of victory, if you want to succeed, you've got to stay in the race. Catherine Mansfield once said, make it a rule of life never to regret and never look back. Regret is an appalling waste of energy. You can't build on it. It's only good for wallowing in. I'm sure there's not a one of us that doesn't have a regret or two in our lives. We all do. That's humanity. That's human nature. We have that. But we are not what we were. We are not what we were. We are what we shall be. Now I ask you the question this morning, what is the measure of a man's life or a woman's life? Is it one mistake, one regrettable act of their past, or all a whole lifetime of good, valuable contributions to God and humanity? What is the measure of a person's life? How do we value that person? Oh, you found something in their record? Is that how you're going to think of them? Or are you going to view them in the totality of who they are? and what they are. Not what they were, but what they are. Because if it had been the other way, if it had been as we normally do, we would have to say to Paul, you're not Paul, you're Saul. 
And because of your act, and it wasn't just one act with Paul, Paul said, I am the chiefest of sinners. And he sent many a Christian to death, to jail, to persecution, to impoverishment, and to destruction. And yet, in the measure of heaven's eyes, and in the view of God, he is Paul the great evangelist, the great church planter, the great writer of more than half of the New Testament, the great expositor of doctrinal truths, the values of which we, the church today, would not have if he had not been, if he had not been included, if he had not been part of what God was trying to do in this world. And while the church at Jerusalem was not ready to receive him. And Jesus said, you must depart from Jerusalem, for they're not ready to receive you. They remember your sins against their families and against them. They remember your persecutions, and they're not going to receive you. But I receive you, Paul, and I've got a great job for you to do. And I'm sending you to the Gentiles, and you're going to be useful to me. And in heaven, when they all meet Paul, who didn't love him on earth. What would their view of him then be? You see, this is what I'm trying to get us to understand. And I feel the anointing of God on me. I feel, I feel the power of the word in me right now. Hallelujah. This is strong. It's strong because our relationships to, to other people are everything that the church is about. It's everything that the church is about. If we cannot relate to one another and be good to one another, kind to one another, forgiving of one another, then we can't be the body of Christ. We cannot be the church. We certainly are not an example to a world full of hate and desire for vengeance. What about me, God? What about me? Is that attitude for vengeance. But human nature is an experiment in both failure and success. And as Jesper Buge Cold wrote in Winter Men, he said, or his character, who was a Nazi soldier, said the war had taught him that things were never simply black or white, there were good men and evil men in every army, but most often both attributes could be found within the same person. If there was one thing that the last few years had taught him, it was that man was neither good nor evil, that people were good and evil. Even he was evil. He knew that. But hadn't he been a good father? Hadn't he been a good husband? Hadn't he been a good friend? He didn't want to know the answers. The truth about us. Strips us of any ability to judge anyone else. The truth about us denies us the right to sit in judgment of other people. But to him who gives mercy, 
that person will receive mercy. For in the measure that you give it, you will receive it. That's the words of Jesus. On the subject of human nature as well, an unknown poet said, doomed for a certain term to walk the night and for the day confined to fast in fires till the foul crimes done in my days of nature are burnt and purged away. That's who we are. And that's what we long for. We long for redemption. We long for justification. And the desire for vindication and justice comes in its many forms and manners. Our desire for justice is one thing, but our desire for revenge is another matter entirely. And it's hate-motivated. Because justice is the provenance of God. That's his business. He said, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. Hallelujah. We have the perfect example to follow. 1 Peter 2, 21-23 says this, For even here in two are you called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow in his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. Hallelujah. I'm going to tell you one thing that there is never going to be any of in heaven, and that is hate. There's no room for hate in heaven. If you can't get over it here, you are not going to get over there. Some of us are carrying around a burden that we have carried for a lifetime or a moment. We brim with the energy of anger, fierce hatred, we were done wrong, we were done wrong, we were done wrong. And that person got away with it, or it seems that they got away with it, or they're getting away with it. We were done wrong, we were done wrong. You can't think of it without hating. You can't think of it without energy. You can't think of it without something rising up within you that wants to spill out of you. It's ugly, it's nasty, it's hateful, it's hateful. But these matters are best left to God to sort out. These things are best given over to Him. And when we give it over to Him, we give up the right to hold on to it. We give up the right to be energized by it. We give up the right to desire vengeance in our time and on our um, orders. We have to. To surrender it to God. You cannot take that hate to heaven with you. I'm talking to somebody today. 
You cannot take that hate to heaven with you. And if it's a matter between you and another Christian now, how much more? How will it be when the two of you meet in heaven? Do you think that you can take that unresolved issue to Peter and go through the golden gate and then meet your brother and sister in heaven and smile and slap them on the back and love them? If you can't love them here, you're not going to get to love them there. Love is so big. It is so big. And hate is so evil. Antichrist, anti-God, Luciferian, satanic. It's satanic. And the energy of one or the other will define your character. It will define your personality. It will bleed out of you in one way or the other. And it will make you to become the man or the woman that you are or are becoming. You have to decide what you're going to hold to and what you're going to let go. What you're going to hang on to and what you're going to surrender. Amen. The path to light. The path to light is to follow love. And the path to darkness is to keep going forward with hate. Hallelujah. We, we have an example to follow in Christ who said, if somebody smites you on the cheek, turn the other cheek. He said, if somebody takes your shirt, give them your coat also. If they compel you to go one mile with them, go another mile with them. To heat coals of fire on the head of them that persecute you. And that doesn't mean literal coals of fire, but... <laughs> That means, essentially, give them a match so they can start their furnace when it goes out. Is exactly what that means. Who, when reviled on the cross, turned to one of the thieves and said, This day you will be with me in paradise. A man who had just persecuted him and slandered him but now sought for forgiveness. The thief on the cross realized that hate isn't going to get it done. I deserve what happened to me. The other guy was hating everybody for nailing him to the cross. He was a bad man. He was getting what he deserved, and he was hating everybody for doing it to him. But the other man realized, I am where I put myself. I have no one to blame but myself for the shape I am in. And can you forgive me? Oh, hallelujah. I feel such conviction of the Holy Ghost. I really believe God wants somebody to hear this word today. You need to hear this word. 1 Peter 3, 8 and 9 tells us this. Finally, be ye all of one mind, having compassion one of another. Love as brethren, be pitiful, be courteous, not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrarywise, blessing, knowing that you are thereunto called that you should inherit a blessing. In order to get a blessing, to receive a blessing, you have to give a blessing. You have to be a blessing. This is how our protocol is to one another. Love one another. Be pitiful. Be kind. Be courteous. Don't return evil for evil. 
but return blessing when evil comes your way. Stephen will have an answer. He will have an answer when he gets to heaven. 1 Peter 4 and 19 tells us this. Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful Savior. Stephen will have an answer for his emotions when he meets Paul in heaven. He will say, Brother Paul, Brother Paul, count it as nothing what you did because I suffered according to the will of God. I suffered according to the will of God. God allowed this to happen to me. You were the agency that sent me to heaven. You were my ticket to heaven. I got here because of what you did. And not only that, Paul, but I, along with you, get to wear a martyr's crown. We both get to wear a martyr's crown. We have the same badge, the highest badge of honor in heaven. The medal of honor of heaven is the martyr's crown, and they both were going to get to wear it. But he's going to say, look, I committed my soul to him in well-doing. I didn't blame him for what happened to me, but I knew he was a faithful Savior, and I suffered according to his will. That's the answer he's going to have in heaven. 1 Corinthians says it best, 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8. Charity or love suffers long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, does not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Charity, love, never fails. For whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Tongues, they shall cease. Knowledge shall vanish away. Love never fails. Let's stand together. I'm going to ask the musicians to come. I close with 1 Peter 4 and 8. And above all things, have fervent charity among yourselves, for charity shall cover the multitude of sins. Hallelujah. Love is the emotion that covers all things, that forgives all things, that does not hold accountable to us for the wrong that is done, but releases it to the hand of him who is just and who surrenders our life to him who is faithful to keep our souls to salvation, knowing and realizing that nothing can happen to us that in somehow the will of God didn't make an allowance for it. It made an allowance for it. And so if you have suffered something terrible or evil or horrible in your life, you should consider how that that has prepared you to be a better man or a woman. How it can help you to become a more powerful human being because the love of God helps you to arise above it, to get up again and again and again 
and to strive and succeed and become a better man or woman in life. Because you are an overcomer. You're not a floor mat for Satan to wipe his feet on full of hate. You are an overcomer. You overcame this thing that had you. You overcame it and you became strong, committed, faithful child of God. A well digger in the valley of Baca. And not a, not a malingerer who failed to follow along behind. Let's bow our heads in prayer. I'm opening this altar. I feel like there should be a strong move to this altar this morning. Amen. People need to come to God and pray. If you're dealing with issues in your life, you're having a hard time over something, you need to come and surrender it to God today. Just give it to the Lord. Say, God, don't let this be bigger than love. Don't let this be bigger than your love, but let your love be bigger in me than anything that has ever happened in my life. Let it be bigger than me because only that can make me a bigger person and a stronger person. I've come to love you, Lord. I'm coming to love you today. Let's come and pray. Hallelujah.